0: We come now to God's Word, so let's ask for His help. Father in heaven, we, in all the places we are, as we attend to your Word, we need your help in order to understand what you're like, what you've done, uh, how you have made your world, and how you've made us. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit now to give understanding, in Jesus' name. We are going through the book of Exodus and are in Exodus chapters two through four today. Exodus means going out. Uh, We all know that the book of Exodus is about God bringing his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt and into an intimate dependent relationship with their redeemer God. It's about the forming of a people, God's people, not simply as an independent nation, not not just like as an ethnic group, but as the first group of human beings redeemed uh, from destruction, from a life revolving around the self uh, to a life revolving around their creator, who's the spring of all good. So from captivity to life. What Israel experiences in Exodus is a token, it's a sign, it's like a first fruits of what God is doing for mankind as a whole. Uh, We can look at Israel and this experience and extrapolate from it about uh, how God is calling people to be His own. And so often what God is doing and how He does it baffles our understanding because our sight is so short. because our focus is so bent inward, because we're so focused on feeling good, we rarely comprehend or take joy in what He's doing and what's really happening. So as I said last week, what we think is happening in a moment is rarely the true meaning of that moment. Well, we look at Israel here, and through their time in Egypt, like we talked about last week, a single family became a nation, and then because of God's favor, they became a large nation in the midst of another one, and then they became a slave nation, and despite the evil of that oppression, God used it to keep them as a distinct people, to keep them different as his people while his plans came to fulfillment, his, his plans matured. And in all this, God alone knew the meaning of that moment. He knew what was happening. He alone knew what was required for Israel to be in a necessary posture for deliverance. So even as we we look from our vantage point back, we can't say uh, what all was needed or what all was involved. We, We don't know what all he was doing. But we do know the time had come. Exodus two, twenty-three to 25 focuses the point. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. To say that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the Hebrew way of saying he acted in reference to his covenant, as if he pointed to the covenant and then acted. That is, he enforces his covenant. So the word tells us that it was crucial at this moment that the people of Israel cried out for help and their cry for rescue came up to God. In other words, to be God's people, they have to acknowledge in some way that as descendants of Abraham, as Abraham's family, they are in covenant with God Almighty, Um, because certainly, certainly. They had groaned. They had cried out before, for years. But the text indicates that at this time, it wasn't a general cry. It wasn't just a cry of misery. It was a cry to God, in whom they had covenant. To the God from the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To the God who had made promises. And now they are crying out on the basis of those promises. In all of it, in all of that, at every moment, verse 25 reminds, God saw the people of Israel. God knew. At every moment along the line, God saw them and He knew. And here, when He remembers the covenant, means that He now acts according to the covenant. They cry out, He cares for them. Now, that central point that God knew and that it was time to act is placed in the middle of the story of Moses' personal formation and, and calling. So you, you perhaps know that in ancient stories, including Hebrew stories, the leader represents the people. The king represents the people. As the leader goes, so the people goes. And Moses' formation encap- encapsulates what the whole nation's formation is going to be or ought to be. He is their prophet, priest, king. He speaks on behalf of them to God, and he speaks and he, um, and he governs as God's representative. He's a prefiguring of Christ in that. So, this is Moses' formation, and his formation tells us a great deal about God's ways and God's plans for his people and how he forms. So let's take a high-angle look. We're going to look at the big picture from up high. Beginning in chapter 2, in the earliest details of his life, Moses reveals God's power for salvation. Moses was born uh, just after Pharaoh instituted his policy of killing off the Hebrew family lines by having the the boys thrown into the Nile. We know he had an older sister, Miriam, and an older brother, Aaron. Uh, And then the policy comes in just before his birth. We don't know what his parents were thinking when they put him in a basket and they prepared that basket to float. They sealed it with pitch. And then they sent Miriam to watch over what would happen as they send him off into the water. Was this an act of self-preservation for the family, not wanting to get in trouble? Or was it an act of trust? I speculate, because we don't know, this is mere speculation, that it is an act that is in keeping with Israel's cry for help. Like it, it matches up with Israel's cry for help. It's vague, it's uncertain, But the fact that Miriam was sent to watch and see what would happen, that indicates to me that they are looking for divine intervention. They're looking to see what would happen. Also notice in verse 6 that the baby was crying. This is what causes Pharaoh's daughter to take notice. This is the only instance in the whole Bible that mentions an infant crying. So, this is not a common detail, it's not a common part of storytelling. Like the whole nation crying out, this cry of the baby Moses indicates vulnerability, indicates there's desperation, and unless God intervenes, there is no hope of of saving. And so, God brings about this saving through the daughter of Pharaoh, who, who comes just at that moment and hears the cry. So Moses is saved according to the plans and according to the tender care of a sovereign God who sees all the pieces and all the people in motion. Next thing, Moses is prepared for his role. So he's preserved, now he's prepared. Still in keeping with this high angle look, big picture, we see Moses grown up among the Egyptians. He grows up among the aristocracy. He's educated in the ways of Egyptian society. At some point, of course, he learns that he's a Hebrew. Uh, Yes, he was one of that slave people, but he had no notion of how they lived. He didn't grow up with a slave mentality. He grew up in a palace. He didn't grow up with burdens and groans, but he, he also, he didn't learn the stories of his people. He's not with them. He didn't hear the songs He didn't hear the bedtime stories. He didn't know uh, the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was culturally an Egyptian, and he likely thought like an Egyptian. He very likely thought about divinities as an Egyptian, participated in their rituals. As we see in verse 19 of chapter two, he looked and he dressed like one, so much so that the Midianites, when they saw him, they called him an Egyptian. But at some point, he began to think about his real relatives. Knowing he's a Hebrew, he became interested in them. We don't know how long he pondered it, but in verse 11, one day he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And he acted, he stepped in and he killed the Egyptian. He probably had a weapon which only the aristocracy, only the Egyptian rulers had. In other words, he uses his place of power and he used tools of power to help an Israelite, thinking that he's helping Israel. But when uh, the next day he soon tries to arbitrate between two quarreling Hebrews, they respond, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? oh It isn't clear if Moses had a plan here, if he was working something out, positioning himself. But he was certainly acting along with a vision of himself, a way of seeing himself. He'd come to mature manhood. He's 40 years old at this point. He knew the ways of Egypt, and he was seeing himself as a rescuer of his nation. He had the means He had the presence to kill and to set right. He had power. He felt, too, that he had some kind of authority to arbitrate, to lead Israelites. We know this because he tried to do it. His actions were somehow in accord with how he was thinking about himself. He may have thought, I have the tools to lead this leaderless people. I should step in. But it wasn't the time. And although Moses had come to mature manhood, Moses wasn't mature. Yeah, he had all kinds of tools. He had gifts. Built right into him was God's design as a leader. He had leadership ability. It's not surprising that he tried to grasp it. Uh, he, He was naturally gifted, but it wasn't time because he wasn't formed. So out he goes into the desert of Sinai, escaping Pharaoh, and he lives with the Midianites. And even there, even upon his first arrival, he can't help himself but intervene where he sees injustice. He stands up for these Midianite girls against some shepherds. He has a leader calling and is built in, but again, he isn't yet formed to be the leader God has designed him to be. Well, how does this formation happen? It happens in two primary ways. Forty years and one encounter. First, it took 40 years in the desert. On one hand, those 40 years shepherding in Sinai were a stripping away of the Egyptian story, a stripping away of Egyptian thinking. In Sinai, there was no yearly flooding of the Nile. There was no cycle of festivals, no rituals to seek the favor of Osiris and Isis and Geb. There weren't 50 gods and an obsession with death. There were no luxurious palaces, no decadent feasts. All that life, all the rhythms of that life, all the ways of thinking were part of Egypt, Egyptian society were stripped away. And in Sinai, Moses lived the life that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had lived. Leading sheep from one spring to another. Survival. There were few resources. There was no room in this for a lofty view of himself. And in those 40 years, Of all the Israelites alive at that moment, Moses alone was reconnecting with the wandering life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he was with Midianites. Midianites were also descendants of Abraham. Uh, Midian was the son of Abraham's second wife, Keturah, after Sarah had died. He remarried. And in those 40 years... Through the Midianites, Moses heard the stories of Abraham. But in one word, those 40 years were about humility. Moses was humbled. He was not the deliverer that he had imagined himself to be. He was not all competent. So even while he was being de-Egyptianized, detoxed from Egypt and having himself cleansed of the Egyptian view of life, he was also forced to revise his own notion of himself. He was brought low. And this was a pretty rough state that he was in. For 40 years, he was without a people, not belonging. He was without a coherent story. When he has a son, he names him Gershom, meaning sojourner or wanderer. Even his son, he considers a wanderer with him because he's no longer Egyptian. He's not a Midianite, but he can hardly call himself a Hebrew. In today's terms, they didn't use the notion of identity then, but in today's terms, he lacked an identity except as one who serves. That was the role that he lived in, one who serves, one who was dependent on the grace and the hospitality of another. And so there he is in chapter three, alone in the desert with the sheep, humbled. He has become soft clay, ready to be molded. The irony, and it's a repeated irony in the scriptures is that the dry, brittle desert places, That's often the place where people become soft in soul, become ready to be molded. Forty years in the desert, and now one encounter with the Lord of all to form Him. You know the story well. In Exodus 3, God speaks from a burning bush. It's on fire but isn't consumed. He calls Moses by name. He reveals his own being as the God who is. And he charges Moses to be his agent in delivering his people, to be his prophet and priest. I preached uh, on this, this, the bush passage uh, the week after Easter. So if you have some time, you might revisit that message. But as we're taking this long walk through Exodus, I want to highlight the overarching meaning of this moment, of what is happening. Moses spent 40 years in the desert. Because he tried to lead Israel. That was the observable cause. Because he tried to lead Israel, he ends up out in the desert. But the real reason for those 40 years was that he was taken to the desert by the sovereign God to be humbled so that he might meet God as the great I am, the God who is. So he was humbled so that he could receive God, which is also what happens to the whole nation. They are brought into the desert. They are humbled so they can know God as he is and know themselves for who they are. When God gives him his task, Moses begs not to be God's messenger, sends someone else. He knows he is not the deliverer and that's a key piece of knowledge. Moses is never the deliverer. He protests. He tries to disqualify himself. Moses doesn't know it yet, but he had become soft clay in God's hands to be perfectly formed, perfectly fit for the task that he was given. This humility was essential. His task was to be totally dependent on the Word of God. Moses was not the deliverer. God was. It would be God's word that would free his people, not the word of Moses. Any other person, i mean, just imagine any other person who had found himself wielding a staff that could be turned into a snake, that could part the seas, that could uh, open waters to spring from a rock, surely would believe himself to be some kind of wonder worker. Anyone else who was made an instrument, like Moses was, to bring about terrible plagues, whose word and action brought about a plague, would be tempted to believe that somehow he had power. Leading was in Moses' DNA. It was part of how he was designed. But those 40 years in the desert made him ready for God's touch to become the exact vessel required to be God's prophet, priest, king, dependent on God's word, humble, and ready to be used. It's hard for us not to look at hardship as anything but hardship. It's hard for us not to think about it as formative. And I'm not saying that you should strive to understand your troubles, to, to make sense of your troubles in the midst of them. Because we can't, we don't, we don't have that kind of knowledge. What I am saying is, is that because the word urges us to it, is to trust in the sovereign God, in the midst of our troubles, to trust him. The God who made the world knows you. Just as God knew Israel, God knew them. And He has known each one of His people. He knows you. And by the blood of Jesus, He has brought you into covenant relationship with Him, which means He is absolutely committed to your eternal life. He knows the meaning of your troubles. You don't. And so when you find yourself in them, We're not charged to seek the meaning of them, but to trust Him. To trust Him. Through His Word, God asks us to believe that human beings are actually desperately in need of their Maker. More than anything, we need our Maker. He invites us to look around and see what people do when left to themselves. What people do when they ignore righteousness. He urges us, to consider our own slavery, our own bent towards enslavement, even those He's in covenant with, even though he's, those He's awakened. He urges us to consider the bonds that we run back to. And throughout His Word, He asks us, He invites us to humble ourselves, to admit weakness, to admit faulty thinking, to admit self-obsession, to admit we want to be at the center of the story. We want to be the deliverer. And he invites us to ask for his mercy, for his healing from all that. He invites us to be soft in his hands. May it not take 40 years. For most of us, That softness requires some trouble. For me, it requires trouble. If you're in it now, hear God's whisper. His whisper, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's Jesus, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. you not harden your heart. Come to him. Father in heaven, as you've shown us through your work with Israel, your formation of Moses as your servant, would you so work in us that we we would soften our hearts towards you? We'd be willing to acknowledge our weakness, acknowledge the the brokenness of our story, the narrative that we offer and want to live by. Lord, by your Spirit, would you give us a willingness to offer that up to you, to receive your account, to receive your mercy, a mercy that's new every morning, that's ready for us. We ask that you'd shape us, form us, in Jesus' name. Amen.